need to work out a way of plugging my laptop in. Give me a sec. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> I'll, I'll just ramble while you do that. <clears throat> you join us here ahead of episode five of Emergency on Planet Sport with Melissa desperately chasing around her uh, spare room by the look of things for a power cable. Um, she's about to disappear. She's back. She's back. There was a lot of clunking. There was a lot of mad dashing. But we've all been there. <laughs> the desperate search for the power cable, knowing that we've only got 30 seconds of power left. <laughs> it's because you've made me put my laptop halfway down the kitchen table so that we don't What did we call episode three? A new kind of winning. There we go. It's a new kind of winning. We feel like we have won already because we have power. We have power. Sourced by renewable energy, mm. I'm utterly certain. Scottish wind. <laughs> Great. Right, for this episode, which is episode five of the series, we're visiting the Commonwealth Games, which were staged this summer in Birmingham, in the West Midlands of England, Birmingham 2022. And major events, Melissa, uh, are interesting, aren't they? Because, you know, on the face of it, they're not particularly sustainable. They happen in one place. Four years later, they happen in another place. So we've called this... Well, what have we called this episode? Learnings Not Lost. I like that. I like that. <laughs> Learnings not lost. So I guess what we're what we're getting at here is the idea that this very unsustainable thing can happen, mm. but we can pass on the learnings from that relatively unsustainable thing to hopefully be more sustainable in the future. It does that make sense? Is there is there any logic at all to that? Yeah, no, I, I think there is. And it becomes really exciting then because we celebrate the fact that these major events pull together multiple sports, multiple countries, athletes from different parts of the world, teams from different parts of the world. And I think a glitch for us, as you have just articulated, is that there are so many unsustainable elements of putting on a show, a spectacle of that magnitude. But if we're able to treat them as an opportunity to bring all those people together and not only see sport at the very highest level, but also share learnings and then translate that, those learnings into events that are even more sustainable in the future, I think that becomes really exciting. Well, this is comfortably the most civilized episode of the series so far because you find me in Birmingham sitting on a grassy knoll, I think they call this, uh, overlooking the fan park at the NEC. Yes, we're at the Commonwealth Games 2022. And of course, the whole sustainability and sport conversation can't ignore major events because they are so huge everywhere we look there are there are athletes and coaches in tracksuits and of course there are supporters as well and there are people from around the world but there are also people from the local area who come here in their thousands and it's very interesting to find out a how a major event like this runs in terms of the sustainability ambition that we all have but also the legacy that it leaves and i'm delighted to say that sitting here with me with the, uh, the diving on the big screen, thousands of spectators all around us, but enjoying the sunshine, are the two key members of the sustainability department here at Birmingham 2022. We've got Jess Fiddler and we've got Joe Lee as well. How are your Commonwealth Games so far? All good? All good, yeah. It's a yeah. lovely buzz around the city, it's amazing. Yeah, it's been great. Jess, could you just set the scene then in terms of 
the importance of sustainability. What was the ambition, first of all, in planning for these games? Sure, yeah, I guess Birmingham 22 set a pretty bold and big ambition around sustainability really early on. So they set an ambition to make these the most sustainable Commonwealth Games yet, which is a huge pledge. And it was a really strategic decision right from the beginning, right from board level, really bought into that. So big ambitions were set from the beginning. Give us an idea of what those ambitions were. Yeah, and I guess one of the key ambitions is creating a carbon neutral legacy. So the first Commonwealth Games to really measure and understand its footprint and really take accountability for that. Okay. And Joe, in, in practice, as we as we sit here, what what are we looking at in terms of those particular missions? Well, I think there's, there's hopefully a few things that we can see here. I guess we're at the NEC, which is an existing venue to begin with. So trying to maximise the use of existing venues throughout our competition and non-competition venues to minimise the amount of construction work that has to be done for these games. There are a couple of capital projects, um, with the refurbishment of Alexander Stadium and the construction of Sandwell Aquatic Centre, but they have really strong legacy stories. They're sort of built for legacy and hired for the games almost so that real focus on um, using existing infrastructure from a big broad brush perspective but you know looking around the fan park we've got seven trent with their refill stations really trying to send that message of reducing single-use bottled water and giving people the opportunity to refill which on a lovely day like today is obviously really popular and all around the venues i've been throughout the games there's been queues mid-sessions for those refill stations so they've gone down really well and yeah so there's Lots that we're hopefully kind of just drip feeding in. And am I right in thinking an existing venue like the halls here at the NEC, there might be a temptation to bring in loads of temporary stuff that gets bought, I don't know, to dress the hall or, or sort of make it look very Birmingham 2022. There's, a, there's been a, an ambition to hire a lot of this stuff, is that exactly, right? Rather than buy it and then throw it away. Yeah, that hire over buy mentality has been really strong throughout everything we've done. The signage solutions, quite a nice example of that. So they've really thought about how they can design stuff that signs like a media sign that you would get at every venue, every games. How can they sort of design them that don't have branding on so they can be reused? And where there is things with branding, how can they be um, repurposed after the games or in fact recycled? I love the, the buzz of the electric cars as well. You've got a fleet of sort of courtesy vehicles, right? Yeah, the fleet team worked really, really hard on that to try and get as many electric vehicles as they could. They've also got some hydrogen vehicles, which is a bit unique and a bit different as well. So really trying to push on that low carbon emission fleet where we could. But there is spectator transport as well, Joe. So yeah. what has been the ambition there in terms of ferrying all these people around? Yeah, I think we knew from the start that spectator transport would be a big aspect of our carbon footprint. And... From our second reference footprint we did at the back end of um, 2021, that kind of certainly came true. It was about 55, 56% of our footprint was spectator transport. Really? Wow, that yeah. high? Yeah, that high. And that's, you know, bearing in mind that as a Commonwealth Games, we actually have a very high proportion of UK tickets. We knew it was spectator transport was a big impact and, and just trying to make sure sure that people are aware that they can use public transport public transport being included in people's tickets to try and shift those modes from private cars or private vehicles onto public transport covering trains buses metro all within the west midlands region yes spectator transport is is a really big hitter it strikes it strikes the message home though doesn't it that you know all the sort of bits and pieces might add up to another 10 percent 20 percent but actually it's the it's the big stuff in this conversation, which really has the, has the major impact. And I guess something nice about the public transport piece is that is that legacy piece. Actually, if people have traveled around the city for the first time on a bus or a tram and they've never done that before, had a good experience, found it easy, actually, hopefully they'll carry on doing that kind of when they travel around the city another time. So yeah. hopefully that sort of installing that behavior as well. Yeah.
And, and on that particular point, will you analyze everything that you've done over these couple of weeks post-event? Yeah, it's going to be a big focus for us, right? So I guess in a couple of days' time, we'll switch to that mode and get data heavy and start looking at everything and really try and focus on everything we can share for future events and try and be as transparent as we can with our learnings to pass on to future games. But then there will be no more Birmingham 2022, and I suppose you will go back to your other jobs if you if you have other jobs and other people, will, you know, the place will be shut down and... That's it. Um, I guess what's so nice about this network, though, the world has got a sport and sustainability seems like such a well-connected space. Everyone's yeah. so willing to share. So I think that'll definitely be, you know, our focus over the next couple of months to try and reach out to all those people and people that have helped us over the last few months and reach out and share our lessons and continue to do so. Here we might be going on to future jobs, but we still have our learnings. I'm keen to sort of pass them on. It's all about collaboration in this space and providing people with those honest learnings helps people to, I think, just give them a bit of a leg up and a, a couple of steps forward so they're not starting in the same place that we started but actually hopefully like a couple of steps ahead and they know some of the questions maybe to ask and when or some of the challenges that might be coming their way so they can think, be proactive about the solutions and so if we can help people come up with the leverage and the right questions or some of the more right questions to ask then I think that's really beneficial for people and they'll say that's really helpful or they say that's not too helpful but either way at least at least we're being transparent and it doesn't those learnings don't get lost as the kind of event moves moves on my head was kind of going to the broader education piece so of course passing on lessons to future events is really important but actually we've tried to use these games as a chance to kind of educate people more broadly on sustainability so carbon for example we pulled together two carbon literacy cool toolkits so one which will be available to volunteers but also to citizens to really kind of help people demystify carbon understand what they can do about it personally it'll be a free to access resource and it feels like it's a really nice thing for us to pass on as that legacy to kind of keep that learning from the games going like it might be the first time they They've understood the term carbon neutral and mm. how do they kind of learn more about that themselves so so where will that be available so we'll have it on our website okay. um, and as soon as it's well we're literally finishing it right now right so okay. as soon as we've and the website's not going to disappear no exactly in a few months That's yeah and in fact actually there's a platform um that will be sort of hosting that for the next next year or so okay so for example they have one for local authorities they have one for university and higher education so about a year ago we yeah we set out to create one for the sports sector which yeah is, is coming together and we'll hopefully get approved in the next month or two and that will sit on the carbon literacy website and the idea is that it's a free to access resource for the sports sector it's sort of eight hours of content um, that's readily available to try and just lower those barriers for sports organizations in delivering training to their colleagues, to their stakeholders or suppliers or whoever they think it's, it's relevant to get that training. And if people do complete the eight hours, um, then they'll get certified as, as carbon literate. So there's sort of a formal um, accreditation perspective to it as well. And yeah, the whole idea is just to, to make training more available in this carbon kind of impact space in sport, make it sport specific. So hopefully it's engaging for the sector and yeah, and make it free to access. So hopefully it takes off and, and allows more people to engage in the topic. Sounds great. And what about the athletes? Jess as well has there been much engagement with the athletes over yeah, the past couple of weeks? Yeah that's definitely something over the last few months we've worked closer on so we've worked with Athletes of the World um, who've been incredibly helpful to kind of help us sort of work out where we where we can target that so they ran two sessions online which is for athletes particularly to kind of I guess show them their, how important their voice is and sort of give them those confidences to how they can speak out and we've had some really great interviews over the last couple of weeks um, in that space as well.
So more from Joe Lee and Jess Fiddler in a bit. Melissa, they were talking there about the sessions with athletes of the world to try to engage athletes who were at the games. Uh, how did you enjoy that? And did you, did you get much engagement from the Athlete Village? Yeah, it was great to work with Jerry and Jess. I think when we started speaking to them, maybe eight or nine months out from the games, um, we were trying to map out how we best engage the athletes who would be attending from all around the world, global north, global south. It felt like a really exciting opportunity to be bringing those voices and experiences together. And one of the groundworks that we wanted to make sure was in place was having this education so that athletes really felt that they were equipped to speak and engage on these issues, whether that's during these two weeks that happened over the summer or in another six months or 12 months. We wanted to put put that basis in place. And so, yeah, it was great to work with our partners, Aim High Earth. We had athletes from right around the Commonwealth nations attending these sessions, learning about the nuts and bolts of climate change, but also really importantly, the piece that athletes have to play in this. It's not for us about training athletes to become climate scientists. It's about getting that groundwork in place that makes them feel confident that they can speak credibly on these issues where it matters. And what was great was to then see that translated we had a couple of athletes especially uh, one from Zambia one from Fiji a couple of swimmers sat with Hazel Irvine on BBC One uh, kind of prime time spot talking about how climate issues had impacted their training their communities and some of the education and behavior change pilots that they'd been involved in as athletes in the run-up to the games that's brilliant great great stuff so while that was going on sort of behind the scenes jess and joe were putting in place all their all their ideas and i like the, the reusable water filling stations uh, i really like that thing about the the transferable signage you know it's a, it's a little yes. thing not a small thing you've banned that word it's a, it's a little it's a little thing but you do see it don't you when you go to these major events all the signs and the banners have the branding yeah. on and you just think that can never be used again so yeah. just you know leave it can be a certain color but leave the branding off and maybe that sign can be used again uh, i love the fact that as well some of the unused material from the volunteers outfits mm. are being converted into bibs for school kids so there's a yeah. There's a real aim there to just not chuck stuff away. It's like, how else can we use this material practically mm. and positively? Love that. It's smart, isn't it? It almost makes you think that where can you add the brand where the brand really matters rather than it just being on every single surface that you see, but maybe having the branded kit for the volunteers that they can then be transformed into bibs and things like that i think as a as a school kid i'd really like to be running around with birmingham branded kits so i think that's a great idea and it does interest me how we translate those sorts of decisions into how we're equipping athletes and the clothing that they're wearing what does it look like for an event and then is there any way of using any of that again or do, do athletes sit with bags full lofts full of kit from bygone olympics um i i think that's a kind of future question that i'm interested to start seeing solutions for yeah yeah where do you where do you start with that Anyway, um, there was also that, that rather scary number, percentage of uh, 55%, mm. wasn't it? Which was the percentage yeah. of carbon emissions just created by spectator transport. Now, that, that makes you stop and think, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And it made me stop and think. 
it really hits home that this is not about individual organisations just trying to sort out their own behaviours and decision making to reduce their own footprint as much as possible. Actually, this is a massive communications piece and an education piece to bring people in an authentic way where they feel it's self-generating decision that they're making that they want Mm. to do this it's fun and engaging and I think that's why it's so important that there are the organizations like Pledge Ball out there to be leading that conversation. Well we were talking at the at the NEC in Birmingham and I was working there for the Commonwealth Games and uh, while trying to go on the train as much as possible there were a couple of days when I had to drive and uh, went into one of the infamous NEC car parks and at the end of the session as anyone who's ever been to an event at the NEC knows you spend at least an hour in the most horrendous queue, everyone with their engines on, waiting to get out of the car park. And you just look around and you think to yourself, why? Why? Are we capable as individuals of making that choice to leave the car at home and going there by more sustainable means? Or does it actually take an event like this one, like the Commonwealth Games, to say, you know what, we're going to shut down those car parks and insist that everyone comes by train? I think that's, that's quite an interesting one and one that I might touch on again a little bit later in this episode when we go back to Birmingham to speak to the guys there. Tell you who I want to bring onto the pod now, Melissa, Amanda Curtis. She's interesting, isn't she? She's, she works worked at London 2012. Uh, she also now advises governing bodies, doesn't she? So she's got quite an interesting perspective Yes, well, she's a sustainability consultant with the ATP. Uh, she's on the board of BASIS, the British Association of Sustainable Sport. And also, I was really interested in our conversation where she tapped into her experience working with retailers as well, because I think other sectors in some aspects are pushing well ahead of where sport is and it did make me think where do we need to be drawing in learnings from other sectors potentially into this podcast but certainly into what sport is doing in this space to make sure that we're right up there fighting with the fittest and what we're doing. Okay let's bring Amanda Curtis onto the pod then. Amanda you're coming in loud and clear which is fantastic. Oh good I'm glad I've hidden myself all the way upstairs so hopefully. You're on your Xbox gaming headset. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Blocks out all the sound. So Amanda, could you give us an insight, maybe you know, touching on Birmingham, but also bringing in your experience of London? How important these these sort of next few years are for these major events as they try to be uh, at least remotely sustainable in terms of what they can achieve for the future. I think for these kind of multi-events and for sustainability and and ensuring that legacy is embedded is they've got this huge reach across loads of different sports. So for one, their their kind of stakeholder engagement, their fan engagement, their sports engagement is huge. And I think that's something at London 2012, we perhaps didn't capitalise on as much as we probably could have done. And I think that's where some of these future sports have got it a lot better. And I think Birmingham integrating the Paralympics as part of it, having that social inclusion part really embedded within it has been really, really strong. And I think they've got some really good things going on, but I think there's still a long way to go. And I think part of that is around the resourcing. We were quite lucky, probably at London 2012, that because sustainability was embedded throughout the whole process as part of the bid, it was an expectation from very early on. We were then able to scale up the team. And I think for Birmingham, one of the biggest 
probably challenges, I think, for them that have done an amazing job at getting lots of parts of sustainability within their program, that actually having that broader reach of team and people and the financial contribution as part of that was probably more of a challenge. And you see that more and more with other sports is that it comes down to that investment and that time and the people that can help support all those different initiatives and make them happen and check that they're actually happening. Can I just ask first off that that idea that you know having a sustainable priority should be central to any bid for major events I mean does does that happen all the time is that mandated or if not should it be um it's definitely from what I understand that it is more integral as part of that and an expectation so I think if you submitted a bid and it wasn't in there and part of that then there would be questions why I know for the Olympic movement, it is a requirement. They are assessing on the sustainability performance and therefore it is integral part of that kind of check. Mm. Um, and they are checked and, and challenged on that as they go through that process. But I think for perhaps some of the others, it's more of an afterthought or a, now we'd quite like you to work on sustainability as well, but it's not actually in your contract to do that. Yeah. And fundamentally, I think if our, things aren't written in writing and it's not a contractual obligation, it often doesn't happen, Yeah, um, absolutely. particularly for event organisers. Mm. One, one of the things that we've been talking about across the series so far is the need for collaboration. And we started this conversation with this idea of legacy when Jess and Jerry from Birmingham were talking about how that legacy unfolded. Part of what they spoke about was communicating to future Commonwealth Games their learnings from the event and I'm wondering are there we we see across sport and sustainability at the moment there are an increasing number of conversations with sports and federations and clubs sharing some learnings of how they're reducing their own footprint but I imagine that that's more complicated when you're moving between events because there's a kind of duration aspect and maybe once an event has has completed it's, it's come to the end there's less of a focus on okay how do we communicate this to other events are there mechanisms that you're aware of across sport for sharing those learnings between sports or within a sport between the different events organizers what i absolutely love is collaboration it's something i think is so key and breaking down silos and sharing so i do a lot with retailers mm. as well and there's huge amounts of platforms in place you know for the soy for deforestation for plastics there's huge amounts of working groups and collaborations where they share all of this and i think sport has got so much more to build in this arena but there's some great platforms out there already and i know on your previous series you spoke to claire paul mm. from sports positive and bringing everybody together as part of that i work uh, sit on the board non-exec board of basis the british association for sustainable mm -hmm. sport in the uk and that obviously brings together lots of different events and groups to talk about and and try and get them to talk about lots of different challenges that they're having but I do think there could be a lot, lot more mm. um, around that. And I think, you know, there still feels like a competitive edge around sustainability and also a huge hesitancy to talk about it because they don't feel they're doing mm. enough. We can all get together and kind of say, well, this is the best way to do it. This is the best procurement process. These are huge, you know, kind of really good contractual wording that you could put in there. These are the five things you need to ask in a contract. And a lot of that could be brought together and in, in more groups, I think. Yeah. But I think 
one of the challenges is that it's very focused around sustainability practitioners within sport mm. rather than operations managers or events managers. Mm. I was really interested, Amanda, in what you were saying about there being transparency across organisations and across sports so that sports feel less on their own in owning up to some of the challenges that they're facing and the more that sports can stand together on that. It remind me a lot of when we're looking at how to engage athletes, often there is that feeling of, well, individuals perfectly reasonably fear putting their head above the parapet, but if you manage to congregate 50 or 100 or 300 athletes around an issue, suddenly that concern is removed. And I do feel like if we could scale that up between organisations, then there's there's less of a feeling of putting any one organisation on the line. And, and I think a lot of progress could be achieved through that approach. One of the elephants I think in the room often around how sports are engaging with sustainability is this issue around offsetting and it's come up a couple of times already in the conversations we're having I just wonder with your expertise and your background within retail as well as sport what your stance would be on can this ever be viewed as a magic bullet is it a sticking plaster is it something that really should be approached with caution Um, where would you stand on that? Offsetting for me really is the last resort and something that we or that I actively tell anyone that I'm working with. The focus has to be on reduction in the first place. That is where you'll reduce your emissions and your impact on the environment. And that's what it's about. In the retail world, for example, a lot of the major retailers and brands have all signed up to the Science-Based Targets Initiative, which they have to have interim and uh, long-term goals. And as part of that, they need to have a plan to reduce their emissions over a period of time. But also any they sh- offsetting is not really considered part of that journey and should only be allowed as part of what you call those residual emissions, those ones that you really can't get rid of at all. And that, you know, shouldn't really be more than 8% of your emissions. So, uh, you know, the focus has to be on the reduction, not just for your emissions, but on your materials and everything else that that contributes to those environmental impacts. How would we transfer that across to, because we were having a conversation with the ATP last week and Mark Epps was saying that in terms of their emissions, um, I think above 90%, was he saying 95% of their, 90, maybe 98% of their emissions were scope three and then 95% of those scope three emissions were through travel and a lot of people within sport would say the travel aspects unavoidable so how how do we translate that eight percent cut off within one sector over meaningfully into sport yeah it's a huge huge challenge for sport don't underestimate that at all things will will change in the long term and i think one of the big kind of elephants in the room often is around some of the things that you could be done around schedule changes, Mm -hmm. really pushing athletes, groups to travel by public transport or or lower uh, emission vehicles. And one of the things that quite often is not really articulated well in the sustainability world, that if we want to make a real, real difference, it's around changing the whole system and completely transforming. And the only way you can do that is by having a 10 year view, breaking everything down 
and starting again and kind of saying, well, what do we want it to be like in 10 years time when when we know, for example, we might not be able to actually perform in certain countries or cities or regions because of the heat levels or the risk of flooding and the inability to, you know, changes to schedules and things. And actually, I think that's a huge thing of trying to look at the actual strategies of those organisations and mm. fundamentally breaking them down. And that's where you need that really, really strong leadership, a bit like the Patagonia um, mm. announcement, investing all profits back into Earth. Earth is their shareholder now. And I think that is just phenomenal that they have been working on this for, I think they said something like 50 years. So, I mean... It's taken a long time, but that is transformational change. So, so that whole yeah. idea of starting again, Amanda, I mean, does that come back to sort of only granting licences for clubs if you meet certain standards? Or is it a league-wide mandate that you don't fly to away games, for example, um, in a football league? You know, are we talking about those sort of big mandate decisions yeah I think so I think it takes powerful leadership I think it's being bold it's taking risks it might not work it might be too soon you know and actually small tweaks help along the journey but it's the big changes that are going to make the difference and I think it's just making sure within any strategy or whatever you're doing for an environmental reduction point of view some of them are going to be the smaller things but also try and look for some of these big things and they might take two to five years to do or deliver or change but start on that kind of journey for those bigger impact changes as well and being brave around what that might look like but yes it would include things like mandating you know if you're traveling under five hours you have to go by train it's, it's almost amazing I... there isn't that in place at the moment don't mm. you think yeah, uh, it's a it's a big shift of kind of changes. And I think as an athlete, I mean, that's a great question is, you know, do we have a, a an amazing group of athletes across lots of different areas that have got together and said, OK, we've got to reduce our carbon emissions. How about what is our best way? Because our schedules are crazy. We're all over the place. We want to focus on our sport, but we also recognise that many of athletes have a, a limited lifespan on their career. And so they've, they've got to be responsible within that period of time and ensure that when they finish that it's also that they've made the best of their career, but also haven't left a huge dent on the environment. Yeah. How how absolutist do you think sports should be in terms of dropping high polluting sponsors? Uh, <laughs> I think personally, it's, uh, you know, I know you need money to run a event, mm. but I think it can be more detrimental now. I think the shift in public perception is greater. It I know from other events I've worked with that they've started to feel really uncomfortable having them as a sponsor and and it is definitely an area that a lot of them are looking at and I, you know I think it's it's going to change and they're going to say no we, we don't want those ones we want ones that have got a better sustainability credential I feel that shift is happening um, but there are some that will still take the bigger money. But the other yeah. bit there, I think, is the opportunity of, yeah. uh, you know, at London 2012, we had a huge investment from six sustainability sponsors. So there is still a huge opportunity there for all sports and events. That's a very interesting way of looking at it. I just wanted to ask you maybe just as a, as a, as a final thought. You mentioned earlier, you, you know, you've got plenty of experience in the retail sector as well. And you also mentioned that sports still has so much to learn and in some ways 
catch up on on this if there's if there's one learning you bring from retail into sport what what, what is that what do you always look at I think it would be the amount of collaborations and innovations that they have kind of both globally and nationally on on the important issues and sharing that and working together and trying to break down where those competitive elements are and the bits that they can share and partner on. That's probably the biggest area for me. We all need to work together. <laughs> Happy it families. Like it's becoming quite naturally to sport, but um, yeah, obviously. By, by the way, Melissa is spending most of this series banning certain words. So she started by banning radical. So that's gone. Now small. she's banning the word small. We can't use the word small and any any more. You're going to sort of wipe. We'll have to wait and see. We've got to have a hook for future episodes. It's going to be today. <laughs> Amanda, thanks so much for taking the time. Really interesting to hear from you. It was great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks, Amanda. So that's Amanda Curtis. Very interesting. She worked on the sustainability strategy for London 2012. She also advises various governing bodies. And as she was explaining there, has a a background in terms of her career in retail. And uh, I think that's fascinating, isn't it, Melissa, having that sort of outside perspective. Do you think sport generally needs to look outside of its own confines and get advice from other sectors? Yeah, I think we had so much to benefit from hearing what Amanda said on that front, the idea that offsetting is a last resort. It staggered me, that idea that they have to follow these science-based targets and their offsetting limit is really capped at a maximum of 8%. And I think that that really needs to be turned around onto sport, where I don't think it's appropriate any longer to be talking about we have these unavoidable emissions that rack up to... 60%, 70%, 80%, 90%. No, I really will keep myself mentally returning to what Amanda's saying. Offsetting is a last resort and it cannot be the solution if we want to make the scale of the changes we need. I also liked how definite she was in terms of we we can't be indecisive about many of these decisions, can we? And we need the advice of people who really know their stuff and she knows her stuff. Absolutely. And how do we get... It was that piece where she said, there's too much hesitancy often in the room. People are unsure because they're worried about the things that they know they're not doing or not doing enough of. How do we move past that hesitancy? Because there is a right way to do it or there's a best way to do it. But we need to be able to identify what is the best practice. And sport should be excellent at doing that because we do it in a performance sense already we're always searching for for the best way to do something so how do we translate that into sustainability and how it how it stems from having a 10-year view and being able to lock in what do we want things to look like in 10 years and therefore what needs to happen by five years time what needs to happen by two years time and what needs to happen this year I think that's what we're really not doing enough of because the energy that is being put into this space is often around how do we measure our footprint and then how do we tick the easy things off first rather than mm. saying how do we build back from this 10-year plan and do something that's really transformational. Yeah, really good point, really good point. I like that and the more of us who can think in those terms, uh, the better. Right, let's head back to Birmingham 2022 and hear again from Jess Fiddler and Joe Lee from their sustainability team. Now, Joe used to play hockey 
for Great Britain and was part of the gold medal winning squad from the Rio Olympic Games. So she's got another unique perspective, both from an athlete's point of view, but also from an event sustainability point of view. So how does she tackle the paradoxical question of the future of major events? Oh, it's a really interesting question because I think if you're looking at like true sustainability, the most sustainable event is to not have one at all. Like, you know, everyone knows that. And or have it in the same place. Or have it in the same place. Or, But there's always a commercial aspect to it. There's no getting away from, from that. And we do have to work with that to a certain extent. But I, you also, you know, on these events, you look around and all these people here, the experiences they get from the kids, you know, families... It, you know, sport is an amazing thing and, and events like these are amazing for bringing people together in the community. Lots of socioeconomic benefits that come from hosting these events wider than kind of the environmental impact. So from my perspective as a sport lover, someone who's been to these events, both kind of, I guess, as a, as a player and, and also as someone that's worked on these events, I think from my perspective, it's, it's all about trying to push boundaries more and more so that we can advance the solutions much quicker. From an environmental perspective, I've, I'd love to see it absolutely 100% at the heart of everybody's thinking within a, a, an organising committee. And we've embedded it to a, you know, a certain extent by having a really ambitious strategy, making sure everyone's aware of that strategy, etc. But I think, you know, as an organising committee and as future organising committees, there's there's a lot of progress and I think that could be made. And I would love to see it that, you know, it's a climate centric or it's environmental centric games. Yeah. And I think I'd love it to just be absolutely the centre of everyone's yeah. thinking but I don't know if that's wishful or not no, I, think it's, I think it's fantastic I think, ambition yeah. and I think you're absolutely right and uh, that's where it needs people who are way above our pay grade to take <laughs> exactly. really big uncomfortable unpopular yeah. decisions I mean yeah. you know I know I'm going on a lot about the keys to get out the car park but I mean <laughs> you could have had someone here for example say you know what we're going to shuttle the car parks yeah. we've got a train station literally behind us here just as an example, not as a criticism yeah, of Birmingham, yeah. but just yeah. as an example, in the future, yeah. you could say we're, we're not allowing cars to our event. Yeah, and those, I think radical, those radical sort of decisions definitely feel the way forward, right? Because I think yeah, that's the I only way you're so. going to make... We've made step changes, we've made positive steps, but I think to make the real change, that's it's where it's going to have to be. Absolutely, and I think it's like like we've made step changes in that you know car parks at most other venues are shut, but because NEC has such massive car parking capacity... It's been allowed a bit more here, but actually the radical point of view would have been like, we've got the capacity, but still no. And I think that more radical, like you, you know, like you say, Jonathan, people with the high pay grades being <laughs> like, we're going to do this completely yeah, differently. And I guess, yeah, that's the challenge. Yeah. Well, we're, we're, doing, we're not doing badly here. We're, shut, we're, shutting, <laughs> we're, shut, we're shutting down the NEC car park. Poor old burger and fries yeah. over there. They've, they've gone twice. As for Ted's tacos, well, they're, they're only going to be left with guacamole. Um, <laughs> no. uh, but, you know, I think that's why this conversation is so important to be had in this sort of open way. You know, there's no point tiptoeing around this anymore, is it? You know, I heard someone the other day in the in the Conservative leadership discussions talk about this as a, a you know a long term issue. It's not a long term issue, is it? I mean this is this is very current. It's affecting yeah. everybody who's who's here enjoying the sport and the and the games here and you, you feel like you need to press uh, press <laughs> fast forward a bit. Um, just on the athlete thing, I did want to ask you, Joe. You know, obviously, you were part of the gold medal winning hockey squad from 2016. 
you have many friends, I'm sure, in lots of lots of different sports. Do you think there is an appetite for athletes to get involved in this conversation more? Yeah, I think I think definitely. So if I think back to sort of four years ago, and the amount of athletes that I knew wanting to ch speak more about this or interested in learning more even or even kind of on their radar as, as an issue I think now the number of athletes who are keen to use their voices and their opportunity while they're you know while they're playing at high levels or competing at high levels to actually shine a light on environment and, and climate issues that they care about and I think there is definitely a positive trajectory in that and I think athletes have such a unique voice that people will listen to them so the more that we can harness athletes in that in that space and help and help them be able to talk about it in a safe way where they feel comfortable too it does get people talking it does put cameras in in that space and opens ears to you know millions you know thousands millions more people through broadcast or media outlets and i think yeah, yeah that can only be positive to get more people thinking and more people conscious yeah, no, thanks for everything that you've done here. And we really wish you good luck with passing on those learnings, both positive and negative, to future major events, because that's going to be the way, really, that we can keep this, this cycle of positivity going, rather than ripping everything up, throwing everything in the bin, and then starting again. I don't think I even know where the next Commonwealth Games is. Where is the next Commonwealth Games? It's in, Vic in Australia, in Victoria. OK, well, they're, they're, they're OK. They're with us on this, yeah. I think, from what <laughs> I know. There's some great people working in the sport and sustainability <laughs> space down in Australia, so hopefully they get on that. <laughs> great. Thank you, guys. Thank you. So it's going to be a big few years for Australia in this regard, isn't it, with the Commonwealth Games in 2026 in Victoria, and then, of course, they'll have the Olympics in 2032 and uh, in Brisbane. Yeah, and they have the Women's World Cup next year, 2023, with New Zealand as well. So, um, yeah, our friends over at Front Runners will undoubtedly be busy <laughs> with all they've got going on. Brilliant. Melissa, thank you very much. That was a very interesting episode, I think. And next time out, we are going to head to another big event. We're going to head to Wimbledon. And uh, we will be back next time. Next Wednesday, in fact. Wednesday is your day. You should know that by now. Mark it on the calendar. Wednesday is Emergency on Planet Sport Day. Does anything else happen on a Wednesday? Nothing, nothing <laughs> See else you Wednesday. On, nothing else happens on my Wednesdays. Do your bins get collected? I don't know. My, my, my calendar is normally dictated by after-school clubs. Mm. I think a lot Do of people might relate to that. You have them committed to memory or you... Oh, yeah. No, ballet day is always a Tuesday. Group. So that's, that's why Emergency on Planet Sport Day is a Wednesday, because I don't have any after-school clubs. Daddy daycare is not required. <laughs> <laughs>